The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We're going to first start with Psalm number 14. So I'll give you a second to uh, get your Bible open. Okay, Psalm 14. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord brings back his people, the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. Okay. Calvinism uses those first verses. There's none who does good, no, not one. Paul writes that in the book of Romans, and they use that as an uh, example that you cannot call on Jesus. You cannot. You have no free will, and only God regenerates you. You are born again at that time, and then you call on Jesus. So you're actually born again before you're saved, according to Calvinism. Okay? So you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He allows you to call on Jesus, and then you're saved. Okay? If you read that in context, which Paul would have expected his people to do, he's making a uh, theological point about there being none who do good, no, not one. Who is writing the psalm? David. He's not including himself in there. And further down, halfway down the psalm, he says, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So obviously there is a righteous generation. And David is talking about who the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He's talking about the atheists, the people that deny the existence of God. So you can take Calvinism and you can chuck it right out of your theology because it's incorrect. All right. Everything has to be taken in context or it forms a pretext. That's right. A lie. So here we go. I just put down the Bible and I've got to open it up again. We're going to go to Numbers 28, 1 through 10. Brian Fagan, it's wonderful to see you. Just walked in. I worked with Brian here for many, many years, and he comes uh, when he can. He is a weekend worker at the job he's at, and so from time to time I don't get to see him, but here he is today. We love you, Brian. Okay, uh, Numbers 28, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings made by fire as a sweet aroma to me, you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And its drink offering shall be one-fourth of a hen for each lamb. In a holy place you shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. The other lamb you shall offer in the evening. As the morning grain offering and its drink offering, you shall offer it as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. Okay, before I get into the sermon, try to follow along and count for me, because I didn't bother doing it, but try to follow along and count how many times we see Christ pictured in those 10 verses, okay? I'm going to be honest, Charlie, with you, and I'm going to admit that coming to this chapter here kind of made me go, <sighs> We have gone through sacrifices and offerings in Exodus. We've gone through them in Leviticus. Well, a couple in Leviticus. And then we went through more in Numbers so far. 
I wasn't so winded by the thought of more offerings, but by the thought that there would be nothing new, or at least refreshing as a reminder that would keep me plugging along at a steady pace as I researched and typed. And it especially appeared that way for two reasons, both dealing with scholars I read for each sermon. First, some of them give almost no comments at all on both chapters 28 and chapter 29. You could read everything that they had to say in just a couple of minutes. Very little information provided by these people. If they could not drum up some notes, then they were obviously winded too. That made things look bleak for anything exciting to jump out at us today. Secondly, the opening comments of two of the references I read, the Cambridge and the pulpit commentaries, were dismissive of the content here. Now, we can expect that from Cambridge. Their Old Testament commentaries are rather pathetic, leaning on demeaning of what the Lord has bestowed upon us. But even the pulpit commentary went down this path a bit. First, Cambridge said concerning two of the nine offerings that we will see in these two chapters, they say numbers seven and number nine show that the list is post-exilic. That means after the exile of Israel, for neither was observed before the time of Ezra. In other words, and without any proof of their claim, they state that some of the content of the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles was added sometime after the Israelites returned from captivity in Babylon. That is hundreds and hundreds of years later. Never mind that it says in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, To them, this treasure given to us by God is a haphazard compilation of a bunch of Jews who needed to correct God on what he intends for us to live by and guide our lives by. In a similar fashion, the pulpit commentary says this, It is impossible to say with any assurance whether the law of offerings contained in these two chapters was really given to Moses shortly before his death, or whether it was ever given in this connected and completed form. It is obvious that the formula for which the section opens might be used with equal propriety to introduce a digest of the law on this subject compiled by Moses himself or by some subsequent editor of his writings from a number of scattered regulations, written or oral, which had divine authority. They then later say, It cannot therefore be said with any special force that the present section finds its natural place here. All we can affirm is that the system itself was of divine origin and dated in substance from the days of Moses. In any case, therefore, it is rightly introduced with the formula which attests that it came from God and came through Moses. So, what we have here, according to them, is a compilation of stuff from here and there, later edited and reorganized, and yet they claim that it came from God and came through Moses. How can it be that God's word needs to be compiled, edited, and reorganized in order to become God's word? That makes as much sense as voting Democrat and expecting lower taxes. Our text first comes from Psalm 12, it's verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. Fortunately, we can know that we have a sure word. This is because Jesus argued over its perfection. He spoke of the absolute sure nature of the word and that it would remain that way. We don't have to wonder if what we look at today was compiled later or not. It speaks for itself. You will see this. Everything we will look at today caught my attention. It took away the blues that I had been feeling, then it made me wonder how so few scholars even bothered to comment in depth on it. We have 10 verses and a full sermon of detail to get through. As I know what most of you think about the Word of God, when we are done, I am positive that you will go home blessed and built up in your faith, and once again amazed at the amount of Christological detail that we will see. Get ready. It's all to be found in His superior Word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the daily offerings. It's verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, in chapter 25, Israel's harlotry with the women of Moab was seen. From there, a second census was recorded. 
That was followed by inheritance laws, which needed to be resolved based on the census. And then Joshua was selected as the next leader of Israel. It is he who would lead Israel into Canaan, the land of inheritance. Each step has followed a logical, orderly path to ensure that there would not be a breakdown of things after the death of Moses and entry into Canaan. Now, for the next two chapters, details concerning offerings are recorded. These are given to ensure that the people once in the land will continue to acknowledge the authority of the Lord and that their daily, monthly, and annual cycle of life is centered on Him. Almost all of what is recorded here is a repeat of what has already been stated elsewhere. However, this is a new generation, and they have been raised without observing most of these rites, in part or in whole. Indeed, they could not. Many require offerings which were not available to a migratory people. They didn't, for example, have grain offerings, because when you're a migrant, you don't plant corn and wait for it to come up and make it into a grain offering, right? Everybody got that? Therefore, to ensure the new generation is aware that they are expected in Canaan and to ensure that they are not overlooked, the details are given again. And the location of the passage is not at all arbitrary, but purposeful. Each step is preparing Israel for entry into Canaan and how they will live once they arrive there. Understanding that, the Lord now says to Moses, verse 2, Command the children of Israel and say to them, here Moses is told to command the children of Israel. The instructions going directly to the people instead of the priests shows that the priest had no say in the offering, but rather he was to follow through with his part of the process, inspecting the offering for type, perfection, and conducting the associated work in transmitting the offering to the Lord. What is mandated here is of the Lord. It was not to be changed by anyone. The priests could not arbitrarily set their own parameters for the offerings to be made. Among other things, this is what the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas did, and it cost them their lives. Verse 2 continues, my offering. The word for offering here is korban. It is used 82 times in the Old Testament, and almost all of them are in Leviticus and Numbers, and we've gone through almost all of them in Numbers. It has already been used 36 times in the book of Numbers, and it will only be seen here and then one more time in Numbers 31, verse 50. It is mentioned one time in Nehemiah, twice in Ezekiel, and that is it. It comes from the verb karav, which means to come near or to approach. The idea is that in order to approach near to the Lord, there must be an offering presented at that time. No person or people could draw near to a king or a royal without presenting an offering. How much more to the Lord who is Israel's true king? Understanding this, we can see how this points to Christ. We cannot draw near to God without an offering, and yet we as believers are told that we can, in fact, draw near to God. This is through the work of Christ, who is and which is our offering. This is spoken of by Jeremiah in the 30th chapter of his book. He says in Jeremiah 30, 21 and 22, Their nobles shall be from among them, and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah states that one would come near who would be allowed to draw near to the Lord God. In the next chapter, it is revealed how this will be accomplished, which is through a new covenant. When Jesus came, he established that new covenant in his blood, as is recorded in all three synoptic gospels, and which is confirmed by Paul in his writings, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when speaking of the Lord's Supper. This is followed up and explained in detail in the book of Hebrews. In Christ, we make our offering to God, which has been deemed as a perfect and proper offering, and thus he is our korban. He is our offering by which we draw near to God. This is a voluntary offering in the sense that we must choose to use it, and yet it is mandatory in that if we choose to draw near to God, it must be through him and through him alone. This is explicitly stated by the author of Hebrews, which explains the new covenant in Christ's blood. From Hebrews chapter 7, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. That means the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect, 
On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. As long as we continue to think about how each detail points to Christ, these repetitious offerings here in Numbers will flow properly, it will be interesting, and it will reaffirm our own Christian walk, which is far superior to these rites and rituals, which only foreshadow his great work. Verse 2 continues, My food, lachmi, my bread. The word lechem used here signifies food in general because bread is representative of that which nourishes. It looks to Christ who said in John 6 verse 48, I am the bread of life. The food here is the Lord's food and in Christ is found the fulfillment of that which is offered to him. Verse 2 continues, for my offerings made by fire. The cycle of offerings which include various sacrifices all point to what Christ would do. The Lord here says that these offerings are made by fire. These then are offerings which are consumed in the fire. The symbolism is that of Christ. His life was wholly consumed as an offering to the Lord, symbolized by the burning. Verse 2 continues, as a sweet aroma to me. Reach nechoachi, aroma sweet to me. Again, we look to these words and we find Christ. In the offering of his life, his works, his perfection, and his sacrifice and fulfillment of the law, he was considered as a sweet aroma, pleasing to God the Father. This is explicitly stated by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Everything that is to be instructed in these coming verses is the same. It points to Christ and what he would do for us. The people of Israel were living out a parable of what was to come in him, so that when he came, it would be understood that he was the fulfillment of it all. It is his life alone which is truly the offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Verse 2 going on, you shall be careful to offer to me. The word translated as to offer is lehakriv. It signifies to bring near. It is that which is pleasing to the Lord and which can be brought near and presented to him. Again, it looks to Christ. The people could only draw near to God through offerings. Christ is the fulfillment of them. And the author of Hebrews showed us a moment ago of the fulfillment of the picture in Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 2 continues, at their appointed time. All that we will see in the many verses of these two chapters hinges on and is arranged according to the number seven. There are daily offerings which lead to the seventh day or weekly Sabbath offering. These lead into the monthly offerings, which are then highlighted by the seventh month offering. And those then lead into the annual offerings. In all, the number seven is predominant in these feasts and in the other cycles of time noted elsewhere. It is the number of completeness and spiritual perfection. These mo'adim, or appointed times, were to be meetings between the people and the Lord in anticipation of Christ's fulfillment of each of them. In just this one verse, we have seen a half dozen or more pictures of what God would do in Christ. Though the words so far repeat thoughts already presented in earlier passages, it is no less astonishing how minutely God is detailing in picture what would come in Christ. Verse 3, And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord. Again, these words are spoken to all of the children of Israel. These things are a standard given by the Lord, and the words are not to be amended by priest, prophet, or king. The first offerings to be detailed are the daily offerings. These were first instituted in Exodus chapter 29. Now they are being re-explained and built upon right here. Verse 3 continues, two male lambs, kebasim, male lambs. The word two is actually stated later in the verse as a qualifier of the offering. The word kebes or lamb is used more than 105 times in scripture and all but less than 20 of them are used in connection with sacrifices. The word comes from a root which means to dominate. It thus symbolizes Christ's domination over sin. And so this offering is a twice daily reminder of the sinless Christ who came to give his life in exchange for our sins. In these lamb offerings, we hear the words of John the Baptist ringing out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
In Revelation 13, verse 8, Jesus is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The daily lamb offerings were a reminder of that which had been ordained before man had ever stepped foot on the earth from which he was created. Sin would be the problem, and Christ would be the answer, known to God from the very foundation of the world. Verse 3 continues, in their first year. These lambs were to be of the first year to denote innocence. Anyone who has seen a young lamb knows that they reflect the epitome of this quality as they bounce about and bleat with joyous sounds. Likewise, Christ was innocent before the law, and he stood innocent before his accusers. The picture of the first-year lambs is fulfilled in him. In like fashion, they were to be, verse 3 continues, without blemish. These, like all other sacrifices presented to the Lord, were to be tamim, or without blemish. The word signifies sound, without spot, perfect, and so on. It comes from tamam, which signifies to be complete or finished. It looks to Christ who, as Peter says in his first epistle, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In his perfect life, he completed what the law demanded, fulfilling it and opening the door for the full and final redemption of man. These lambs, without blemish, look to Christ, our Lord, the perfect Lamb of God. Verse 3 going on, day by day. Shnaim layom, two each day. The reason for there being two will be seen in the next verse. But that they were daily was to show not just the perfection of Christ, but the unceasing perfection of Christ. He wasn't just born perfect, but he also lived perfectly day by day in an unceasing manner, never deviating from the Father's will. As he said in John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Verse 3 continues as a regular burnt offering. Olah tamid, burnt offering continually. The Olah is a whole burnt offering the word comes from Allah, which means to ascend. And so the idea of the offering ascending in smoke is what is conveyed. The Olah in the Bible goes all the way back to Genesis 8, verse 20, after the flood. Noah offered such an offering, and there it said, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings, Olah, on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. The last time such an offering is mentioned in the Bible is actually in the New Testament. There in the Greek, it is known as holokautama. As you can hear, the word finds its origin in the Hebrew Ola, Ola Holokautama. However, if you listen carefully, you can also hear where our word Holocaust comes from. Holocaust, Holokautama. Thus, one can see where the concept of our modern term is derived. In the use of the modern term, the meaning is applied differently based on the user. For those who burnt the Jews, they act as if it was a sacrifice to God, which would supposedly please him because they had done away with his enemies, meaning the Jews. For the Jews, it was as if a sacrifice to God had been made of their lives in order to please him. Either way, these are incorrect uses of this word. No such idea should rightly be connected to what occurred at the hands of the Nazis from either viewpoint. There is but one truly acceptable offering, which this burnt offering pictures. That is detailed in the Bible's final use of the burnt offering, which is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings, right there, and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first meaning, the law of Moses, that he may establish the second, meaning the new covenant in Christ's blood. By that 
will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The second word here is tamid, or continually. It carries much the same thought as the offering being presented day by day. However, it looks to the actual impact of that offering. It is explained by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 again. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Thus, the olah tamid, or burnt offering continually, looks in type and picture to the coming Christ and all that he would do for his people. He always pleased his father in his earthly life, and the effects of that are that he always lives to make intercession for his people through his one time and for all time sacrifice. Verse 4, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. This is a long sentence. Et hakabes echad ta'ase baboker ve et hakabes hasheni ta'ase ben ha arbaim. The lamb one you shall offer in the morning, and the lamb the second you shall offer between the evenings. It is a marvelous picture of Christ's final day in fulfillment of the law. In this, the two lambs are combined as one daily offering. The first is at the time of the morning offering, which is noted in historical writings as nine o'clock in the morning. The second is said to be offered ben ha'arbaim, or between the evenings. At first, it seems like a perplexing phrase, but it is one that is based on biblical time. In the Bible, a day is divided into evening and morning. Thus, there are actually two evenings to be reckoned. The first began after 12 o'clock, and it runs through until sunset. The second begins at sunset and it continues until night, meaning the whole time of twilight. This would therefore be between 12 o'clock and the termination of twilight. Between the evenings then is a phrase which speaks of the three o'clock sacrifices conducted at the temple. They were considered as the evening sacrifice, even though to us it would be deemed as an afternoon sacrifice. It is a phrase used only 11 times in the Bible, and it always points to the timing of the death of Jesus Christ, which the Gospels record as 3 o'clock in the afternoon. To understand why the two lamb offerings are equated as a single day's offering, and thus symbolically one offering, we must go to the book of Mark. There it first says, now it was the third hour, and they crucified him, the third hour. The day starts at 6 o'clock, according to Mark. When you go through the Gospels, days start at different times based on what reference point. Are you using Roman time or are you using Hebrew time? What time of the day? Mark is using a reference of 6 o'clock in the morning. The third hour then would be 9 o'clock. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. It then next says, now when the sixth hour had come, which would be take 6 o'clock, add 6, and you get to 12 o'clock. At 12 o'clock, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. That was at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. Mark, who is in agreement with the other gospel writers, shows that Christ was crucified at the same time as when the morning offering was being made, 9 a.m., he then says that Christ died at the same time that the evening offering was being made, 3 p.m. Thus, the two lamb offerings encompass and stand representative of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross from beginning to end. The type of offering, the timing of the offering, and every detail associated with the offerings looks ahead to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Along with the lambs, the children of Israel are also instructed, verse 5, and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour. The number 10 in scripture signifies the perfection of divine order. It implies that nothing is wanting and that the number and order are perfect. The whole cycle is complete. The 10th part is given as representative of the whole. In this case, it is one-tenth of an ephah of solet, or fine flour. 
Solet is from an unused root, meaning to strip its flower as a chipped off, and thus it is fine. It is generally considered, even when not specifically stated, that wheat was the flower which was used in such an offering. It would be the best of things offered to the greatest of beings, meaning the Creator. In this, it is a picture of Christ. The tenth part, representing the whole, shows that nothing is wanting and that his offering is perfect. And through his work, the whole cycle is complete. He is the perfection of divine order. That it is solet, or the finest flower of wheat, looks to his purity. It is a fitting emblem of Christ who is the bread of life and the one who thus provides everlasting life to those who partake of him. It is an an acknowledgement of this to God. As it says, it is, verse 5 continues, a grain offering. Le mincha, for a grain offering. The word mincha signifies a gift or an offering. In this, it is a grain offering. It represents Christ who offered his life as a pure offering, the bread of life to God. But it should be noted that the grain which is offered came from God. And yet it has been modified by man in the grinding process. Thus, a type of work is involved in the picture. In this offering, then, is seen the work of Christ, which remained pure and undefiled throughout his ministry. Everybody seeing the symbolism? You have grain which was given by God, but man worked on it, and they made it into fine grain. It's a picture of Christ's work. He is working as a human being to satisfy the law on your behalf. That's the picture you're supposed to be seeing. Along with that, the offering is, verse 5 continues, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. Here, shemen, or oil, is said to be balal, or mixed into the grain. The oil pictures the Spirit of God. Though Christ is a man, he is fully endowed with the Holy Spirit. He is fully God. The fourth of the hen stands representative of the whole. The number four speaks of creation and signifies material completeness. The fourth part of oil is mixed with the body which was prepared out of creation for Christ. That is referred to in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will. Oh God, so you see how these offerings are overlapping. You've got the Ola or the whole burnt offering. You've got the grain offering, the Mincha here, and they are being portrayed by the author of Hebrews in the same verses. A body was prepared from the created order for Christ, and that body is fully endowed with the Spirit of God. That is referred to by Isaiah. Here's what it says in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See how the shaman or oil is mixed in with the the grain offering and it's picturing Christ in all of his aspects. Finally, in this verse, the word used to describe the oil and is translated as pressed is katit. It is used just five times. This is the fourth and last time in the books of Moses. It will be seen one more time in 1 Kings chapter 5. It indicates something beaten. It is only used in connection with the olives that have been made into oil. The process of beating the olives is what the adjective implies. The oil which is expected would usually come from unripe fruit. It would come out clear and without color. After the gentle beating of it to break the skin, the full olives would be placed into a strainer of some sort like a wicker basket, in order to allow their juice to drip through by gravity alone. The liquid would simply run through that and into a bowl. From there, the purest oil would float to the top and it would be skimmed off. Out of this, the anticipated result would be oil with no impurities at all and thus the very finest possible. Everything about this grain offering looks to Christ. It is he who has the full measure of the spirit intermixed into his perfect humanity. There's nothing impure in him, and therefore the spirit mingles perfectly in him and radiates perfectly through him. Verse 6, it is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. The Hebrew doesn't say this was ordained at Mount Sinai. Rather, it reads that the burnt offering was made at Mount Sinai. What appears to be the case is that after leaving Sinai, 
the people were to travel rather quickly to Canaan and enter the land. Upon entry, the offerings could then be picked up and resumed right away. However, due to their disobedience, they were stopped during the following 38 years. Now the people are being re-instructed in what is expected concerning these offerings because they are soon to enter Canaan. This appears to be the reason for the question asked in Amos chapter 5. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? The answer is apparently no. And thus, this fits the typology we have seen perfectly. The people of Israel rejected Christ. They did not offer to God what these offerings here look forward to, meaning Christ, and they went into extended exile, just as Amos prophesied to them. Now, they're about to enter Canaan where they would again be offered, picturing Israel's coming acceptance of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of these types and shadows. Everybody sing the symbolism still. The fact that it says that these offerings were made to the Lord for a sweet aroma at Mount Sinai, which pictures the cross of Christ, is a nice touch in packaging all of the symbolism up into one beautiful picture of how redemptive history has unfolded since. Every detail in these few verses is looked to Christ. Israel missed this, and they failed to offer that offering to God. But now they are beginning to gravitate towards Christ more and more each day. I was watching some Hebrew songs some, from some of the artists I like to see on uh, YouTube yesterday, and they were singing a new song that I hadn't heard before. And they were talking about exactly this right here, the people of God now being brought back to their God after 2,000 years, all being pictured in what we've seen in the book of Numbers, sermon after sermon after sermon, showing that time of exile. And now they're right at the door of Canaan, and here they are right at the door of coming to Christ and being the nation that leads the people of the world while Christ rules among them. It's all being seen right in the Numbers sermons. Verse 7. And its drink offering shall be one-fourth of a hen for each lamb. Now we turn to the nesek, or drink offering. It is to be one-fourth of a hen. The fourth stands for the whole. A drink offering is one to be offered in the land of promise, a land of defeated enemies. Thus it is a land of rest. Only when rest is provided would the Lord accept these libations. All during the time of the wilderness wanderings, they were not offered. Further, a drink offering is poured out in its entirety to the Lord. No part of it was drank by the priests or the people. This signifies that the people were partially excluded from the full blessings of the Lord while still under the law of Moses. In picture, it looks to the complete pouring out of Christ's life. The fourth part carries the same meaning as in verse 5. It speaks of creation and signifies material completeness. The human aspect of Jesus, that which is of the created order, was poured out in its entirety as an offering to God. Paul speaks twice of his own life as a drink offering. In both instances, it is referring to the pouring out of his life in death. Verse 7 continues, In a holy place you shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. Bakodesh hasek nesek shakar leyehovah. In holy, you shall pour out drink offering, intoxicating drink, to Jehovah. The offering itself is holy, and it is to be poured out on the offering at the brazen altar. Thus, it is considered a holy place. The type of drink is shakar. It signifies intensely alcoholic liquor. Whereas wine is normally mentioned for a drink offering, this more intense drink is named. As this is an offering to go with the lambs, which picture Christ's crucifixion, the use of this word looks to the trial which Jesus faced. In Proverbs, it says this, Give strong drink, that same word, to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. And in Isaiah, it says this, They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink, that word again, is bitter to those who drink it. There is an intensification of the imagery in this passage for the audience to contemplate. It was Christ who was perishing for their sins and the bitterness he faced was for their redemption. The cross is God's holy place of propitiation and we are asked to stop and contemplate the enormity of what he accomplished for us. Verse eight, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening as the morning grain offering and its drink offering. This is now the last of 11 times that the term Ben Ha'arbaim, or between the evenings, is seen in Scripture. Each and every instance look forward to the time of Christ's death on the cross. 
As both the morning and the evening sacrifice are to be offered in the exact same manner, they are united in thought as one event. From the time that the nails entered into Christ's body until the time that he died, the imagery in these verses concerning these two lamb offerings with their associated accompanying offerings is seen. It is as one offering to God. The morning offering would be incomplete without the evening offering, and the evening offering would make absolutely no sense without the morning offering. You can't die on a cross if you weren't nailed to the cross first. Is everybody seeing the symbolism? One lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening. While they were in the temple doing these sacrifices of these lambs, the high priest is there doing his duty every single day, sacrificing the lamb and pouring out the drink offering on it. Christ was at Golgotha being crucified. And when they went up there smugly to offer their second lamb in the evening at three o'clock in the afternoon and slaying that little lamb and laying its body on that altar, Christ died on the cross of Calvary. And they were doing these things and they missed the significance of what occurred. Only in the crucifixion and death of Christ do these two offerings, morning and evening, become united in meaning. And the significance of that is seen with the words of verse 8 continuing. You shall offer it as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The words are substantially repeated from verse 2 and were also partially stated in verse 6. In verse 2 it said, as a sweet aroma to me. Here it says, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The repetition is given to settle in the minds of the people how good and pleasing these daily offerings were to the Lord. As they picture the death of Christ, the passage would be incomplete without showing how the Lord perceives his crucifixion. From Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. Then the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. A lamb spotless and pure without any defect will be sacrificed in my place. And looking at that lamb, I can certainly detect the greatest love and grace. This I see looking upon his face. Oh, that I could refrain and not see him die. Oh, if there could be any other way. How could this lamb go through it for one such as I? O God, this perfect lamb alone my sin debt can pay. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the sinless one there on Calvary's tree. He has prevailed and the path to heaven has been unfurled. The lamb of God who died for sinners like you and me. Our second thought today is the Sabbath day offerings. It's verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 and on the Sabbath day two lambs. The words here are the second set of offerings for the people to consider. They are national offerings, even if they are only offered by the priests. They are made on behalf of all of the children of Israel, and they are weekly offerings occurring each week on the Sabbath. This is the first mention of these Sabbath offerings, and they are made in addition to the daily offerings. In other words, the daily offerings, which we just went through, are not replaced by the Sabbath offerings. Rather, the Sabbath offerings are made in addition to the daily offerings. Verse 9 continues in their first year. These are to reflect the innocence of Christ, just as before. Verse 9 continues, without blemish. These are to reflect the sinless and unblemished nature of Christ, just as before. Verse 9 going on, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering. Two-tenths are for both lambs together, one-tenth for each lamb, not two-tenths for each. The grain offering is to reflect the purity of Christ, just as before. Verse 9 going on, mixed with oil. The oil is representative of the spirit, just as stated above. Verse 9 going on with its drink offering. It can only be assumed that this drink offering is the same as that mentioned above, shakar, or intensely strong drink, and not yayin or wine, as with other drink offerings. This would continue the same typology as was seen above. If so, it seems unlikely that it would be any different, because if it was, 
it would more probably state that the Sabbath offering was wine. As nothing is stated, the same type of drink offering as the daily offering appears to be what is offered. I say appears because it doesn't say, and I don't want to add or change scripture. Verse 10, this is the burnt offering for every Sabbath. Nothing is stated concerning the time of these offerings. Were they offered at one time together? Were they offered separately? If they were offered separately, were the individual Sabbath offerings offered along with the two daily offerings? one in the morning and one in the evening? It does not explicitly say, but the last option seems likely based on our final words of the day. Verse 10 finishes with, besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. The verse says, al olat hatamid veniska, upon the burnt offering, the continual drink offering. In other words, each Sabbath offering is laid upon the morning or the evening offering. This would then provide a beautiful completion to what these offerings picture in Christ. The two daily offerings form one continual reminder of Christ's work by which we are brought near to God and accepted by him. The two Sabbath offerings form one weekly reminder of what that means for the believer. That is minutely explained in the book of Hebrews as the author explains the meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath in relation to God's seventh day, which follows the creation account. In particular, it says in Hebrews 4, verse 3, for we who have believed do enter that rest. The Sabbath of Israel was only a type and a shadow of the rest which would be granted to those in Christ. We who believe now enter into God's rest. This is why we no longer observe a Sabbath. Instead, we live our lives in the rest which Christ has provided. Here's the symbolism. The laying of the Sabbath lamb upon the daily lamb signifies that. In Christ, there is full redemption. In Christ, there is rest. In Christ, we are brought near to God. And in Christ, all is accomplished. What was anticipated by Israel is realized in Christ for any who will simply reach out and by faith accept his offer. He has done the work. We need to do the believing. Have faith and rest in Christ. Everybody got the symbolism? Isn't it marvelous? You read these 10 verses. I don't know how many times you've read the book of Numbers. I've read it a billion times, we'll say. Maybe not, maybe a couple. However many times we've read the book of Numbers, you come to a passage like that and you really quickly read through it because you think, oh, it's just a bunch of offerings. You know, it's boring stuff, and I don't mean that you should think that way. I'm just saying that that's what our minds think because we don't understand what's going on. But the next time you read this, when you go through the Bible, you are going to say this is marvelous stuff because you now have the connection to why God put this in here. What is this anticipating? What is God trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us the same story that he's tried to tell us since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. You fell. You have done wrong. I am going to correct that problem. I am going to send my son right outside of the garden and or before they were expelled in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, he promised that he would send a redeemer. And then they were sent their way out of the garden. And that is the point of all of redemptive history since then is to bring us back to that state with God. And as we saw in our prophecy update today, there is only one way to go back to God. And that is through his one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. And the lesson that the Pope in Rome right now is giving to the people of the world is absolutely abominable because he is taking the faith of the believer off of Christ. He's taking their eyes off of Christ and he is saying that another person can do it as well. This person named Mary who admitted she had her own sin, that she was waiting for her savior and she went and died and went into her grave and she is waiting to be raised just like all of the saints of the ages. If you have never called on Jesus Christ, I would pray that today would be the day. Get away from aberrant teachings. Get away from teachings which tell you that you have to observe a Sabbath day. Get away from teachings which say that you need to do this or this or this or this or this from the law of Moses. Don't add to the word of God. Don't subtract from the word of God, but take it in its intended context. God showed us the most beautiful things in his 10 verses today. I'm telling you, when I started that sermon, I really did go... 
<sighs> I, I made an exasperating noise out loud because I thought, Lord, how am I going to tell the people about something that we've already talked about? And when I got done at the end of the day, I almost couldn't sleep that night. I did because I'm really tired after studying for these things. But I got to tell you what, I was so excited. Lord, it is going to be okay. The next chapter and a half are going to be just as exciting. I know they are. And sure enough, you'll find that out in a couple weeks as we progress through them as well. The Lord is not wasting our time with these things. He's leading us to an understanding of Christ Jesus. Cling to Christ. If nothing else in this world makes any sense at all, at least Christ does. Cling to Jesus Christ. Our closing verse comes from Colossians 2. It's 16 and 17. I read this at every single feast of the Lord as the text verse in Leviticus 23. I'm reading it to you now again so that you understand this and never forget it. So let no one judge you in food or drink. That's the dietary laws of Israel. Food or drink or regarding a festival, that's the feast of the Lord. Or a new moon, that's coming up in another sermon or two. The new moon, I think it's next week. Or Sabbaths, yes, it's next week's sermon. Sabbaths, that's the Sabbath day, the seventh day. Let nobody judge you in regards to those. Nobody. Which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. I said this during the Feast of the Lord sermons. And I hope that you'll remember this when I say it again. If I take this and it's out in the sun and there's a shadow down there and I try to grab the shadow, I'm not going to be able to pick it up. It's just a shadow. But if I take this, I get the shadow and the substance. I get everything in Christ. Don't cling to rituals that are obsolete because God has fulfilled them in his son. Cling to Christ. Get away from the law of Moses. Get away from works of the law because all you're doing is you're not showing faith and you are losing rewards if you're saved. And if you're not saved, you are not going to be saved by clinging to the laws which are obsolete in Christ. Cling to Christ. Next week is Numbers 28, 11 through 15. That's what? Five verses? 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Yeah, five verses. Numbers 28, 11 through 15. I always forget because you've got to add the first one if you're on zero. You know what I mean? And then so if it says 20 through 15, uh, 25... It's actually six verses, but I think five because I see, I'm not very good with numbers is what I'm trying to tell you. Numbers 28, 11 through 15, another set of important profferings. It's entitled the New Moon Offerings. That'll be our 55th number sermon. Now, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you were lost in a desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Now, I'm thinking of Jill, who I talked about at the beginning of her sermon today, or actually before the Prophecy Update. She got a job, which she'd been waiting for for a long time, and it turned out to be a not-so-good experience for her. And I'm thinking of her because she emailed me, and she says, I know that Christ is with me. I don't understand why this has happened, but she is taking heed to the words that I say every week. Follow him and trust him. Because he will do these things for you. So keep Jill in your prayer. We need to make sure that she finds something that will take the burden off of her heart. Now, I've got a question for you here. We have talked about the Sabbath offerings, right? That was the second set of offerings, just a couple of verses. The Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 each give a different reason for the giving of the Sabbath. I don't know if you knew that, but if you do... What are those two different reasons? Exodus 20, it says one reason for the giving of the Sabbath. And in Deuteronomy 5, it gives another reason for the giving of the Sabbath. Anybody know what they are? Okay, I'm going to tell you. The first one is creation. For the Lord your God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. But in Deuteronomy 5, it says, For the Lord your God redeemed you. Creation, redemption. Creation, redemption. He gave two different reasons. And if you follow that, it goes all the way through Scripture. When you read the praises in the book of Revelation of the heavenly host praising God, it first says that you are the Lord God. You created all things. And the next thing it says is you are the Lord God. You redeemed man, etc. All the way through the Bible, you're going to see creation and redemption. Creation and redemption. People that deny this word and say it has errors and... Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. This word is absolutely perfect. Nobody got the Maserati, but I'm going to give you a bonus question. Are the Ten Commandments binding on believers today? Be careful. Well, she said yes. They're exhortations now. 
appropriate. They are appropriate, but. I like that one the best. They are exhortations, but I like that. They are appropriate, but. How do you know that the Ten Commandments are obsolete, annulled, and fulfilled in Christ? It says through Paul's letters, but how do you know? Maybe you're misinterpreting what Paul said. Okay, I'm going to ask you it directly. Are we sitting here on the Sabbath day no, not, no. not doing anything except worshiping the Lord from Friday night until Saturday afternoon? Why not? Because it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Christ. If one is fulfilled, they're all fulfilled. However, and this is why I said be careful, nine of those ten are repeated in the New Testament. We are not to kill anybody. We're to honor our parents, etc., 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 okay? So the Ten Commandments are not binding on Christians because Christ has fulfilled them. However, they are binding on us, nine of the ten, because they are repeated in the New Covenant, okay? So you got to understand it. But you will not lose your salvation if you break one of those nine commandments, you will not lose your salvation. You will lose your joy. You will lose rewards. You will suffer, and you may even die. You kill somebody, guess what? You may be executed. Old Sparky up in Tallahassee will take care of you, right? So be careful how you handle your theology. We are to do the things that are prescriptive in the New Testament epistles, and that includes those. But they are, not, they are a part of the law of Moses, which is annulled, obsolete, set aside, and also bonus nailed to the cross, Colossians 2, verse 14. Okay, he died, the law in its entirety died with him. Anything in the New Testament or the New Covenant is what our marching orders are. Be careful with that, but there you go. That's your answer. Okay, uh, Mr. Magnuson is going to get that today. You're, you, I should give it to you, too. I'll let you do Oh, you've already gotten it once or twice. Okay, go ahead. Before I start. 28. 28 what? 28 times. Oh, 28 times Christ was portrayed in these few verses today. Imagine that. And I bet you you missed a couple. I bet you. But we, he said 28. That's, that's rather remarkable for 10 verses that you would just read really quickly and, and not even realize the significance. Think of that. The lamb's being slaughtered. Christ is being crucified. The second one is being slaughtered, and Christ is giving up his breath on the cross. It's one sacrifice in the minds of the people. It's a daily sacrifice anticipating Christ. Our poem today is called The Daily and Sabbath Day Offerings. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words to him he was relaying. Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings, ever so prime, made by fire as a sweet aroma to me, you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord, such shall be the proffering, two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening, it really is no toil. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai according to this word for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And its drink offering shall be one-fourth of a hen for each lamb, so shall it be. In a holy place you shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering, yes, an offering to me." The other lamb you shall offer in the evening as the morning grain offering and its drink offering. You shall offer it as an offering made by fire. A sweet aroma to the Lord shall be this proffering. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath. Besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering, such shall be the Sabbath's proffering. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful, wonderful word. Thank you for what it portrays in the blessing that we have from studying it and seeing Christ on every page and in every line indeed. Lord, we certainly pray for Jill. She's having these troubles in her heart and in her mind, and she's feeling like things are beating her up, but you have a better plan. You have something wonderful in store for her. We're confident of that. And 
even if nothing does happen in this life, our confidence is wrong. She has something really wonderful coming in the next life, as we all do. It is a promise, and it is a guarantee because of the work of Jesus. But we would ask that you would relieve her burden and give her the, the desire of her heart so that she can glorify you with work of her hands in the presence of others, being an example of Christ. Lord, thank you again for this word. Thank you for the fellowship of the believers here in this church and those that are with us online. It is so wonderful to be a group of people worshiping you in this way. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.